Welcome to episode six of the Brionis Society podcast, in which we bring you a conversation with the legendary Willie Brown, former speaker of the California State Assembly and former mayor of San Francisco. I'm Bill Jackson, co-founder of the Brionis Society and your host this month. Willie Brown arrived in San Francisco from Texas as a teenager in 1951. After earning undergraduate and law degrees here, he was elected to the State Assembly in 1964, where he served for 30 years, including 15 as the powerful Speaker of the Assembly. In 1996, he was elected Mayor of San Francisco and served in that position for eight years. Mayor Brown has never been shy about speaking plainly, and he did not disappoint in our interview. So many interesting stories about black leaders in 1960s San Francisco who were Republicans, about Ronald Reagan signing the bill that legalized abortion in California, and about how he first got elected to the speakership of the California State Assembly with more Republican votes than Democratic ones. You'll hear his thoughts about how we got from the days of yore, when there was a lot more bipartisan collaboration, to today, when many members of both parties talk about how the other party is evil and wants to destroy the country. You'll also hear about his friendship with Donald Trump and what he thinks Trump really cares about. Before we get going, two quick notes. First, we recorded this podcast at John's Grill on a Saturday morning as people were arriving for lunch. So you're gonna hear some background clinks and conversation. We like to think that this adds to the ambiance. Second, if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the Briona Society podcast. Click on the plus button or the button that says subscribe in the top right corner. There's much more great content to come and you'll be glad you did. Without further ado, our conversation with the Honorable Willie L. Brown, Jr. All right, Mayor Willie Brown, thank you for joining us here at John's Grill uh, before Saturday lunch. Appreciate your time. Oh, it's available to you. Pat Riley says I should be here. I'm here. <laughs> Pat is a precious person in my life. So your birthday coming up in two weeks. What have you been up to in this last year? A little bit of everything. Uh, I have uh, probably engaged myself more than I should in the world of politics, almost as much as when I was uh, an elected official. And to that end, it means you have to keep up with everything and everybody, period. And you have to get back online with reference to the people whom you have interacted with year in and year out. And then you have to do something that you do nationally in you know, terms of your connections. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been doing all those things and having a good time at doing it. Fantastic. And what do you care most about these days in, the, in your political involvements? I care about whether or not we can increase the number of people who really are genuinely committed to the idea of trying to make decisions on the basis of whether or not something is right or wrong. Is it the correct thing to do rather than simply should X win or should Y win? Mm -hmm. And X and Y being those who seek public office. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned before, we're from the Briona Society, which is a group of Republicans trying to build up the party here in San Francisco. 
And we're really interested in your early experiences with Republicans in the state and how Republicans and Democrats were different in the 1960s and 70s and 80s compared to now. So my first question for you is, when you were first elected speaker in 1980, right? Correct. You were elected, I believe, with more Republican votes than with Democratic votes. Is that correct? That is correct. Can you there were 80 members of the House, and in the past, the House had been dividing itself by caucuses, Republicans and Democrats. And in many cases, they would go into caucus, which was a private event. They would nominate and make a decision among the individual caucuses of who their candidate would be, and then they would go out on the floor and cast the votes accordingly for their candidate. It was never an election of a member of the House. It was a caucus nominee. I always thought that was an incorrect thing to do because the House is made up of 80 members. The House should get what they would consider to be the best member to be the speaker. I think the Congress should be similarly situated. And I had uttered those words, you're in and you're out. And then finally, on my second try for the speakership, I decided that I would go talk to my friends on the Republican side of the aisle and my friends on the Democratic side of the aisle. And of the 80 members of the House, at that time, 32 were Republicans and 48 were Democrats. I got 23 of the 48 Democrats, and I got 28 of the 32 Republicans. So the number that you ask about is 51 members of the House, of the House, for the first time in the history of California, voted for a speaker, a member speaker, not a caucus speaker. What were Republicans like the Republicans that you dealt with, the ones who supported you, how would you describe them and how were they the same or different from the Democrats who supported you? They were members who were interested in the House. And they did not put their political persuasion or their political party first. It was still the House, which meant the most talented people and their talent should be utilized, consistent with the quality of that talent. That's what this collection of members were really like. If you're asking me what were their political persuasions, I think among the Republicans, it was probably the most conservative collection of Republicans with whom I had ever served. Among the Democrats, I think it was probably the most liberal collection of Democrats with whom I'd ever served. But you brought them together. It's something that I, I well, can't no, imagine. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, I don't think you should just describe it as together. Okay. I think I convinced them that the House is best served mm. if the House elects its own leader, not caucus nominees. Don't limit yourself to caucus nominees. The process had visited itself when Democratic caucus nominees decided to try to get rid of the then-speaker, Leo McCarthy, 
a fellow San Franciscan who had defeated me in 1974 for the speakership in the caucus process. And Leo McCarthy was not like most of those Democrats who were raising on Oleel with him, following him Howard Berman out of Los Angeles, out of Beverly Hills, exactly, had been the guy that was going to try to replace Leo. And for a whole year almost, they were constantly making motions to vacate the chair, spending more time trying to push a political agenda rather than a House agenda. And that resulted in one not being characterized as either a liberal or a conservative or progressive. None of those things had much application because we had come to the point where it was the House rather than the individual parties. Because after all, Berman had more Democratic votes than McCarthy, but Berman couldn't get 41. Leo McCarthy had the Republicans standing on the sideline watching the fight between these two Democrats in the scrimmaging situation, and that had eliminated literally any party preference. I read your book in the last week. I love Basic Brown, learned a lot. And one of the things I didn't know is anything about San Francisco Republicans and say the er black Republicans in the 1960s. You mentioned Bunny Simon. Joseph Simon was his real name. Okay. We called Tell him us Bunny him. Simon, yep. yes. And his son today, by the way, is a good friend of mine. And his son, Timothy Simon, was a Republican, no longer, I think. I think he left the Republican world when the Trumpites and, and the crazies on the Republican side start uh, doing what they were doing. He's now an independent, but he served in the administration of my good friend, former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. He served in his administration as the appointment secretary for that particular governor at my request and at my recommendation in part. And he went on ultimately to become a member of the California Public Utilities Commission. And he now may very well be one of the most informed African-Americans in the country on energy issues and energy policies. There were several other, and he was the son of Joseph Simon, but there were several other black people who were Republicans here in San Francisco. And they were as militant on the civil rights issues as militant on the effort to see that Lyndon Johnson did what he needed to do on the Voting Rights Act. And so we were not burdened with the party affiliation. I suppose probably not until Goldwater got the nomination in 1964 yep. that there began to be any evidence of serious preference. There had been people talking about several kinds of Republicans uh, who were out there and several entities within the public confine, but it was never captured by anything having to do with something other than good judgment. I am fascinated also by your story of, I believe, Bill Bagley. William Bagley William was Bagley. a member of the California State Assembly. We called him Bill Bagley. He was from Marin County 
and he was probably one of the best, if ever, members of the House. He ultimately became, I think, the founding chairman in the Nixon administration of uh, one of the regulatory agencies that went on to become very important to the economy of America. And Bill Bagley was an aggressive human rights advocate. He had, with great pride, membership in every organization that I was a member of that addressed the issue of equality, etc. So what would you say would have been the policy or ideological difference between you and Bill Bagley back in those days? There were almost none, except that I think Bill Bagley had grown up as a Republican and had proceeded through his college career as a Republican, and he had gotten himself elected as a Republican, appealing to his constituency. But I don't think it was the kind of appeal to the constituency that said everybody who isn't a Republican should be banished from the earth. It was not that kind of a Republican. So that obviously shifted over maybe beginning in 1964 with Barry Goldwater and certainly by 1994 with Newt Gingrich. What do you think in American society shifted in American politics and culture shifted such that, you know, now many Republicans would say that Democrats are evil and want to destroy the country. But back then they wouldn't have said that. And also more lefty, more progressives on the Democratic Party would say that Republicans are evil and want to destroy the country. What do you think? You've had a long career and seen a lot of changes in American culture and politics. How did we go from where we were then to where we are now? Well, I'm not sure that I could, in fact, accurately state how we got to where we are now. But I'll go back beyond 64. Let's go back to when Earl Warren, our Republican Chief Justice, wrote the opinion in Brown versus the Board of Education, which reversed the theory that had come forward from 1896 involving Plessy versus Ferguson, when separate was canonized as the way in which America should be. It was obviously a corruption of the democracy and the democratic principles. But when he took over, he got a nine to zip vote with Republicans in control at that time of the Supreme Court. And so suddenly we were in a position where people like Rosie Parks could do what she did and not fear being killed, where a number of other people who sought uh, an effort to implement Earl Warren's edict from the Supreme Court. And so that was that kind of an effort being made. And it was being made in the private sector. It was being made in the educational institutions. And therefore, that spun the Bill Bagley of the world. Even then-President Nixon would have to be considered relatively unique by today's standards because he commissioned George Schultz, an employee of his, a cabinet member of his, to solve the problem of fairness on the economy side 
for people wanting to do contracts with government. People wanted to do positions with government for purposes of trying to change the democracy. And George Shultz, the then President Nixon, set those standards, implored those standards, something the Democrats had not done, literally not done. And then I got to tell you that post what Goldwater did and what Goldwater said, I think that's the point at which the John Birch Society uh, began to get legs. And I think that's the point at which Democrats reacted to that in a way that combination of those two things have led us to get away from being what we were with Brown versus Board of Education to where we are today. Mm-hmm. I read also with interest, you're writing about Ronald Reagan and you're amongst other things, getting him to sign the bill decriminalizing gay sex in California. And I wonder if you would tell us something that maybe many people don't know about Ronald Reagan. Well, first of all, it was Jerry Brown who signed the bill. Oh, it uh, was. Okay. It was I'm Jerry Brown who signed the bill. What Reagan did, though, is Reagan signed the bill that literally allowed for abortions to be considered legal in California. It was a bill carried by a member of the state Senate from Southern California, and it was probably an early time period. Mm -hmm. But it was, in fact, the kind of thing that resulted in the whole change in how we deal with women's health issues. And that was the start of it. And that was something that the Reagan governorship, and we're not talking about the Reagan presidency, we're talking about the Reagan governorship did in the early 70s. And so you can see how the world was so dramatically different. Mm. But the John Birch Society was doing their work. And on the Democratic side, we were working, for an example, to try to do something about including the gender issue, particularly gay and lesbians. And we only had gay and lesbians by identification at the time. We did all those things at the same time. Combination of all those things began to create reactions that still evidence themselves today, Mm. where people really have just uh, totally flipped out at how they react to differences of views on issues. And it's something that I still can't get my hands around. You could disagree with me, but I don't understand why your disagreement, if it does not prevail in discussions with the body politic, how you suddenly will resort to other means by which to force your views to be accepted. Likewise, my views on the issue, if they differ from yours, should not be the subject matter of somebody's desire to force my views to be imposed. That just makes no sense at all in a democracy. But I think that all started post-Brown versus the Board of Education. So do you think Brown versus the Board of Education was the first major decision that triggered reaction? I think it's the first major decision that made it comfortable for many of us to say that 
everything that occurred in the Civil War, everything that occurred as a result of what Lincoln did when he attempted to change and wipe out slavery, all of those kinds of things obviously required some implementation, but they were legitimately reposed and determined in the halls of Congress and in the state legislative bodies. They were not part of what people used in the streets, and they did not come from people who were speaking hate, period. They came from people who had appropriate and legitimate disagreements philosophically, but accepted the result of majority. Yeah. So this is it's a good point to transition to, to today a little bit. When you first got involved in San Francisco politics, there were a fair number of Republicans around. In fact, the mayor, when you were first elected to the assembly, was it George Christopher? He was the mayor. He was San the mayor. Francisco, and, I, and he had been a candidate, by the way, that I recognized right out of the box when he tried to become the governor of the state of California. But he was the mayor of San Francisco and a person holding the title of Republican for party preference was not considered an enemy by Democrats. A person holding party preference as a Democrat in San Francisco was not considered an enemy not to be tolerated. It wasn't that way at all. Yeah. In fact, I read a little bit about him, and he called himself a progressive Republican. I think he probably did. And if I was trying to define him, I think the word progressive, as we know it today, would fit. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think about, you know, in the last 30 years, certainly, Democrats in San Francisco have faced very little competition from Republicans. You know, it's become a one-party town. What do you think of that state of affairs? And do you think that the city would be better off if there were actually two functioning political parties in this place? Well, first and foremost, I don't think political parties should have much of a role in municipalities. That is not something that we ought to be. There's no such thing as, you know, a constitution applicable to municipalities. We all live here. We live next door to each other. We go to work with each other. We go to churches with each other. And we don't spend time discussing the great beings. We've spent time worrying about potholes in the streets and garbage on the streets, about public safety and about decisions on operationals of government for what they should or should not do and how quickly they should do it. And it should not be plagued with whether or not the Democratic uh, announcement about its great policies or the Republican announcement about their great policies ought to interfere, frankly, with that. And I must tell you that when I first ran for mayor of San Francisco, I went to the Republican County Central Committee and got their endorsement. And I got it because I was able, with my friendships, developed with Republicans in Sacramento, people like Pete Wilson and others would be able to say Willie Brown should be the mayor of San Francisco because he'd be the best mayor for your city. And so I don't think the absence of Republicans by party preference reflects or anything other than the pure personality of the individuals seeking public office. 
I don't frankly recall even Newsom running as a Democrat for mayor. Ed Lee didn't run as a Democrat for mayor. I didn't run as a Democrat for mayor. I ran as the best candidate for mayor. Yep. So you wrote in your book that you've been unusually popular with Republicans. Why? I think for the same reason that I was unusually popular with many Democrats. I was simply the best at doing the business. So Jesse Unruh, I really enjoyed reading in your book about him. And one of the things you wrote is that he believed in remachining things, not just making deals. And I wonder, as you look at the state of politics in this city today, or even in the country, in what ways do you think we need to remachine our political system today? We need to get to the point where we actually look for the best answer, period. Regardless of the Democratic National Committee's agenda or the Republican National Committee's agenda, we should look for the best answer. And that best answer usually comes from all of the brains participating and helping to frame the answer. And cities literally need to reflect that more aggressively than almost anybody else, because after all, the application of pure government best occurs in municipalities. It does not occur at the state level, for which I was speaker for almost 15 years. It does not occur at the national level. Those great policy announcements need to be made, but the day-to-day implementation of the things that affect the lives of people occurs literally at the community level, and municipalities are communities. Right. But I think we could agree that it's not, not everything is going swimmingly in San Francisco right now. You know, I read your views on term limits, campaign finance, your idea about a 10-year mayoral term. How would you shift the way the system works to encourage the rising up of the best ideas and the best people? On my score, I'm doing what I can to elect people who will hold office and begin to utter a new standard by which one should hold office, rather than adhering simply to whatever comes from a political party. And I'm curious, with regard to what issues, have you been compelled or have you been felt that conservatives had a good argument? I don't even see the arguments from a conservative or liberal standpoint. I see the arguments as being answers to the questions. Let other people characterize them as to whether or not that's a conservative win or a uh, liberal win. I think it's far more important that it be a win for democracy, period. And I, I don't think when the late George Moscone went down at our behest to seek uh, signatures attached to declarations of how black people in Mississippi were not able to vote. I don't think that had anything to do with which political party. It had to do with whether or not people should be allowed and should be encouraged to vote. The same when it took so long for women to be able to get the opportunity to vote. 
I don't think it's going to have to do with Republicans or Democrats. I can't think it had to do with whether or not women should be considered eligible to vote at 18 years of age without reference to gender. I think it's important that that's the dialogue we ought to have and, and not whether or not it's a conservative issue or a liberal issue or a progressive issue. Since we've now added, by the way, you can't just be, by some people's account, a liberal. You, you got a problem. As a matter of fact, now you can't even be just a conservative. They even have a problem identifying, period. And believe me, a Trumpite is considered uh, not exactly a conservative anymore. That's something unique in the world of Trumpism. Yeah, I'm curious if there's anything about Donald Trump that you admire. Donald Trump was a friend of mine, or is a friend of mine, I guess I should say. In all honesty, I actually <laughs> had the fun with Donald Trump. He would uh, ask my advice and counsel. And at that time, I don't even think he was a registered Republican uh, when I first met him and, and knew him. I think he's always been a Trumpite, though. He just mm -hmm. was never able to display it. And I think opportunistically he displays it. And I don't think he would want to be considered just now even just a uh, a Romney Republican. I think he would want to be considered just a Republican because that happens to be the place where he might get elected. I also think that he wouldn't hesitate if there was some other place he could land that might get him elected because he is about being elected. He's not about being philosophically accepted. Right. No, he is not. A lot of Democrats in this city thought he was a disaster and might cause the end of democracy as we know it. Did you feel that way? Well, I tell you, some of the crazy ideas that he has assigned him that title and assigned him. And it wasn't the Trump that I was familiar with on a personal basis. Mm. He didn't become infected with make America great again concept until he at some point decided that that might get him elected president. Mm. I don't happen to think he believes in all that personally. Mm. I think he is still uh, pretty much what he's always been. And that is a guy looking for an opportunity to make it. To win. Yes. <laughs> I'm curious today, a couple issues, public safety in San Francisco. You know, we have, um, you know, our violent crime is somewhat on par with some other big cities, but our property crime is off the charts. If I can ask you, if you were mayor today, what approaches would you take to dealing with public safety in San Francisco? I would be extremely aggressive at making sure that I, my army was fully engaged, that my army was fully staffed, and that my army had the full protection of the mayor's office on the criticism drome. And I'd expect my army to be reflective of that kind of sport and that kind of attitude. That's the relationship I had with the police department. I named the first Asian chief of police, first minority chief, like I named the first chief of the fire department who happened to be black. And each of those two units had been sued by my friends and relatives and me because neither of them at the time wanted anybody black or anybody any other color 
to be a part of them. Yep. That mentality still has some, I suspect, home in some of the minds of some of those people. But as the mayor, you can alter that instantly. Yep. And that's exactly what I attempted to do because my next step was to say that every board and every commission would be reflective of the democracy, of the demographics of this city. And I did so, I was not concerned about whether or not I would be sued or criticized or any of those things. And some people say, well, you know, you are moving towards a dictatorship. Well, you know, so what? You criticize me if you wish. But if I have a five-member commission and there is a black, an Asian, a gay, a lesbian, and a Latino, each represented the five, I'd say that I have done what you would not dare to do and what we don't have time to wait for all this business of trying to change things. Mm -hmm. So that would be my concept. I also backed the police department. I didn't hesitate, didn't hesitate if I thought they were wrong to deal with the police department, just as I didn't think the same way with reference to the school district or the same way with reference to any other part of who runs San Francisco. I am the CEO. Yep. That means I'm responsible for everything out there and the bike coalition whom I confronted by virtue of their messing up my city. Every last Friday of every month in the evening, they would do that. You've got to be prepared as the mayor, period, to challenge every one of those things and do so under the commitment for what is right and what is intelligent and what is appropriate to do and to have your personnel so enthused about doing it that way that you don't run the risk of your necessarily losing. And so what if you lose? Yeah, it seems to me today that amongst many in the political class, there's fear about projecting as much power as you projected as mayor. Do you think that's true? I think that many of the elected officials today are guided as much about where they go next after the job they currently hold. I never had any fear of where I might or might not go next. I was so committed to the idea that I can get things done. If you're handed the power, you should use the power while you have it, period, and not worry about what comes next. Because believe me, what comes next, the foundation of it ought to be how superior you are to your opponent. Mm. And you demonstrate that by your performance. Yeah. But there's also been changes structurally in San Francisco's government. In 2002, charter amendment was passed, which limited the power of the mayor over the police chief so that there's the police commission that has more power. It seems to me that we might be better served if there was a stronger mayor so that if the mayor has the power to at least do the job, if he or she doesn't do the job, the voters throw him out, but at least he has the he or she has the power. What do you think about that? The 202 reference you made mm. was just one of the things that a collection of folk holding public office in San Francisco have attempted to do. They hated the idea 
that when I served as mayor, I did not tolerate the nonsense that this mayor has to engage in and be a part of. And it's just awful. Literally, I say that every mayor ought to be willing to stand the opportunity presented to themselves with somebody challenging in the court system, they're exercising the appropriate authority of a CEO in the corporation called San Francisco. Mm. And believe me, I would totally and completely ignore many of those so-called rules that were done by an uninformed collection of voters in San Francisco following the stupidity of the idea of limiting the mayor's power. The mayor's power should be enhanced, not limited. Mm. Yeah, I think that's one reason Republicans like you is that (laughs) (laughs) is the idea that people in power ought to have the opportunity to use power for the public good. And if they abuse that, of course, they should be held to account. But we shouldn't they shouldn't be all tied up in knots. I don't think that Republicans are the only people who think that the Willie Brown world is the political world and the decision-making world and the power world. I don't think they're the only ones. No, I agree. Period. And so I think there are just as many Democrats who believe in that as there are Republicans. And these are people who really believe this democracy works best when we literally... De- propose debate and let the end of that debate by a majority vote determine. What has occurred in San Francisco is things like ranked choice voting. Who in the name of ever ranked choice voting? That's inconsistent yeah. with the democratic process. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Totally inconsistent. You get weird and outcomes. Who, and whoever heard of people coming up with the idea that the legislative branch of government should be participating in making choices for how the executive branch of government really operates in San Francisco with these boards and commissions. When I talked about the five, currently this mayor can only name three of them. The legislative branch names two. Yeah. And that's by how those people who wanted to do damage to this operation in the city changed things. But they went further than that. And the public is probably unaware. But the mayor's three have to be approved by them. Their two do not have to be approved by anybody. What kind of nonsense is that? It's nonsense. That's totally and completely. Totally and completely. It's not partisan. It's just nonsense. I would refuse to seat their two where I'm mayor. All right, let me ask you a theoretical question. Imagine it's the year 2040. And so it's about, I don't know, 17 years from now. And the Republican Party has grown in San Francisco. What do you think it would have done to do that? If you were advising the Republican Party and you could have anything, you could tell them anything and they would listen to you, what would you say to them about how to be relevant again in a city like San Francisco? I would be as aggressive, literally. I would tell them that they should do what George Christopher did. They should do what the collection of other Republicans who were here, they For ought to go back. Years from 1902 or something? They ought to go back. The 60s. They yeah. should go back to when party registration 
was not considered a next step to be elected to municipal office in the city. That's why when you are running for office in San Francisco on the local government side, and you do not see party preference shown behind any name. That's not what we do. Right. That commitment that caused us to do that can be replicated in our conduct. Mm-hmm. And yet, the Democratic Party is bound together by certain ideas. Yes? The party is bound together yeah. by a pursuit of certain results that they would like to see philosophically. Yes. And that's not just as a Republican Party is similarly situated. But, but in- none of that must be the only thing that says you are able to make the decision for everybody. You can't. You've got to include everybody in the decision-making process. I agree. And if Republicans are not known right today in San Francisco as being successful, they're down to 6% of voter registration. They're right down there with black folk. We're only 5%. (laughs) Almost. So if, we are five percent. Again, if you were, if they came to you, if the chairman of the San Francisco Republican Party came to you and says, "I want to hire you, Willie Brown, to advise me on how to double my party from six percent to twelve percent," which could happen, what would you say to him or her? I would tell them that they really ought to do a search, just like you would for the best set of brains to run the public library. Get that set of brains. Just really smart Absolutely. people. Understand Abs- the issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And convey the quality that you really have. There are a multiple number, a multiple number, for an example, of Asian Republicans in San Francisco mm. whom you don't even know about. Yeah, yeah. I'd find them. Yeah. Thank you. Last question. I think if I understood your uh, Ten Commandments, in your book, number 10 was have fun. Uh, what would you say the status of that these days is amongst the political class? Are politicians having fun? No. No. And it's a tragedy because the fear of being criticized for this phony standard of appropriate behavior has adversely impacted the ability of politicians to really be whom they are and who they are and how they are. So that could be a clue to Republicans. If What if Republicans made a kind of informal pact that we're going to have a lot of fun? I think that the, that would be a good thing. They yeah. might surprise themselves as to who shows up to laugh with them. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. It's been a pleasure to chat about, I don't know, I think 60, 70 years of political and and, and cultural history in San Francisco. So I hope you have great lunch here at John's Grill today. All right. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you.